Two and a Half Admins, episode 14. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And up front, you want to plug your summary of the OpenZFS Dev Summit, Alan. Yeah, over on my company's website, I wrote up a, a summary of each of the talks and uh, all the interesting stuff that happened. Uh, so if you head over there and check it out, it was a, a good time, a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, we um, During Matt's opening session, he also talked about basically all the stuff that's going to be in the next release of OpenZFS 2.0. And it was interesting to see almost every one of them had been presented at a previous uh, OpenZFS Dev Summit or the other three big headline features were being presented this year. Uh, and the, the videos for all the talks are online now as well, all linked uh, in my summary there. So check them out. Okay, well, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And do you want to plug All Things Open then, Jim? Absolutely. All Things Open it opens up uh, Monday, October 19th and Tuesday, October 20th. Uh, last year and the long, long ago before time when people attended conferences in person, we had over 5,000 attendees. Uh, this year, everything is all virtual. And we're expecting somewhere between ten and 15,000. It's going to be a good time. Okay, cool. Well, let's start with some news then. And the first one is almost unbelievable to me. And that is that a bunch of COVID tests were lost by the UK authorities because instead of using a database, they were storing them in an Excel spreadsheet and not even an XLSX. It was the old school, 20-year-old version of Excel. Right, a database. Uh, you mean 40-year-old <laughs> version, right? The, the .xls file format dates back to 1987, and that's why it only allows you to have 65,000 rows. <sighs> that is almost as old as me. That's unbelievable. So I was reading the article, and they're talking about like the companies that would do the test would upload basically a CSV file, a, a text file that Excel can open. So my question was, like, did they just chuck those files when they were done? Like, How did they actually lose the data? Like, I can understand why the, when they imported it into Excel, it might not have all been there. It might not have been included in the reports. But for the data to be lost would mean they would have to, like, thrown away the incoming data after they thought they plugged it into their Excel, which just doesn't make any sense. Uh, I mean, these are folks who are trying to keep track of an entire country's COVID testing with an Excel spreadsheet. Nothing really seems out of the question here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like you keep your constituent files, even if it's just a backup. There, there's some CSV files. It's not like they were taking a lot of space. So look, Alan, I mean, so every day they upload the new CSVs and they take the thumb drive and they erase it and they put the next day's CSV on it. What don't you understand here? <laughs> yeah. I mean, what kind of database should they have been using here? Any. I mean, even as like <laughs> any. like a MySQL would be good enough, right? MySQL, fucking SQLite, anything would have been fine. MySQL, Postgres, uh, you know, God, even just be blasphemous and go with Microsoft SQL. Just like an actual relational database, please. Or possibly non-relational. I'm not entirely sure what the data looked like. They could have even just been using Microsoft Access. No. It's not really, no. I don't suggest no. that, but... No. <laughs> At least it's not Excel. Excel is not a database. It should be the fucking name of the program. Like when you launch it, it should be Excel is not a database. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you will suggest that to Microsoft, eh? I don't get what you don't understand, Alan. It's the database spreadsheet. Come on, man. <laughs> but this is common, right? This yes. is not some unique one-off thing. Right. I'm sure somebody thought it was a good idea to make the file just .xls rather than the newer .xlsx because uh, it's more compatible, not realizing that it meant that each sheet could only have 65,000 rows in it. But what I mean is it's pretty common for people to use spreadsheets when they should be using a database. 
incredibly common. That's why I keep making these silly jokes about, you know, what don't you understand? It's it's the database spreadsheet. Well, because a lot of times the problem with if you just have a, a database is you don't have a, a reasonable UI for people to do stuff to it. Uh, and, you know, people have to think a lot harder to write an SQL query to select certain rows than to do the filtering in Excel and so on. Part of the problem is using the legacy Excel format limited the number of rows, whereas if they'd used the newer one from 2007 or whatever, which it turns out is basically just some XML files zipped up together in the end, <laughs> um, it supports, I think, up to a million rows per file uh, or sheet or whatever, uh, and probably wouldn't have been a problem. But, you know, that's not really the point here. The point is they really you know, for something like this, should have had a database. And we're not talking like they needed to spend a million dollars on consultants to design a database, like anything can import CSV files. Yeah, they needed an actual developer involved for a project this size is, is kind of what it boils down to. Like one probably would have been sufficient if it, you know, I mean, if it was somebody mm -hmm. with a decent grasp on, you know, the back end and enough front end uh, one developer might very well have been enough, but just clearly there wasn't really on the IT side of things, you know, there, there weren't any grownups in the room. Yeah. Somebody just took, you know, some people doing their jobs and said, you know, hey, track the entire country's COVID testing and, you know, just sort of let them be. And when you do that, a, a giant Excel spreadsheet is what you end up with. That's what happens every single time. All right, well, something you wrote about was AMD's new Zen 3 Ryzen desktop CPUs. Yeah, they look pretty exciting. Um, you know, we're, we're having a really good back and forth this year between AMD and Intel for a while now. It's basically just been Intel going, hey, guys, we, we've got really fast single-threaded performance. You, I hear you gamers like that. And just kind of generally getting their asses kicked beyond that. But um, Intel came back really well with the Tiger Lake laptop CPUs, and now... AMD is coming back with the next generation of desktop CPUs, and they have taken all of the performance crowns away. They are faster single-threaded. Uh, both the Ryzen 7 and Ryzen 9 are faster than the i9-10900K, which up until now was Intel's fastest single-threaded and fastest multi-threaded you know, desktop processor. I should be fair, I'm going on AMD's own testing here. I haven't had one of these devices, you know, in my own hands to test, but it, it's been quite a while now that AMD has produced pretty detailed tests and they have been, you know, dead on when you get devices to test in your own lab. So uh, right now, I don't really have a whole lot of problem believing them when they say they've taken the crown on single threaded and multi threaded and both the Ryzen 7 and the Ryzen 9 are beating Intel's i9-10900K, let alone lower spec CPUs. And the backwards compatibility is pretty good with old motherboards, isn't it? It is. We're kind of going to have to see how that really goes. But we, um, we're we broadly expecting with BIOS updates, all uh, AMD 550 chipsets motherboards um, should be fine with the new processors. And AMD has been a little cagier on the 450 chipsets, but they have said that uh, basically they've made the code available to all the motherboard vendors, but it will just be a question of, you know, which vendors actually prioritize that to allow those boards to take the newer processors. Yeah, basically, with the older motherboards, it's up to the motherboard manufacturer to decide if they want to make a BIOS update or try to convince you to buy a new motherboard instead. And, you know, the ones that do it might, you know, get that extra consideration next time for when I'm buying my next board. You know, is the board going to last a bit longer because they actually do bother with the BIOS updates beyond getting my money. Yeah. 
but also like looking at the kind of iterative growth, when was the last time we saw a 19% uh, IPC improvement from an Intel generation? Ooh, um, I don't think we've seen 19% IPC gen on gen from anybody for about 15 years, maybe 20 now. Uh, like I think Sandy Bridge or something was about that. But yeah, it was like 10 generations ago for Intel. Yeah. And Intel's still stuck on the old 10 nanometer, right? That's true, but I'm not even sure I'd, I'd phrase it that way. It's not even so much that they're stuck on 10 nanometers that they're still growing into it. Tiger Lake was really the, the first generation that I would say Intel had kind of comfortably gotten a real win on with 10 nanometer. Um, Ice Lake was also 10 nanometer, but the clock speeds were low and uh, they didn't perform all that well. And Intel had trouble producing many of them. So I, I don't like I said, I, I don't think it's so much a case of they're still stuck on it as like they're still growing into it. Meanwhile, Apple launching the iPhone 12 with a 5 nanometer, which, okay, that's different. It's ARM and everything, but still it shows how far behind Intel are. Yeah, and AMD says that their 5 nanometer is well on track also. Yeah, and then looking at some of the other stats here, like the power numbers are starting to remind me of the old Pentium 4 days where the Intel, or the AMD CPUs were just so much better performance per watt than the Intel ones. Yeah, and they're, they're TDPs you can actually trust as well. Well, yes and no. I mean, neither one of them... When you're when you're talking about desktop CPUs and not laptop CPUs, the TDP is is kind of BS from from either camp, but it's a lot closer on AMD's side to the spec than it is on Intel's side. When you look at the newer 105 watt TDP chips, whether we're talking about the last generation or whether we're talking about the upcoming Zen three, it's 105 watt thermal design power. But if you have adequate cooling, you can actually pull. I believe they set up to 142 watts consistent, which that, that tracks with what I've seen. Um, now, with that said, you know, I've seen Intel chips with 125 watt TDP. And granted, I'm looking at uh, I'm usually looking at, you know, power draw at the wall. But I've seen Intel 125 watt TDP systems that are doing a processor test. And, you know, there's not anything else going on that would be drawing any power anywhere else. But, uh, you know, like 335 watts. So it's a really big difference. You're at least within shouting distance of the stated TDP on the AMD side when you're on, you know, all core boost for long periods of time with enough cooling. I was interested to see that the pricing has gone up. It's like AMD just don't care anymore. They're saying we are better all around and we're going to charge you for it now. Well, I mean, they are. And why wouldn't they? Yeah. Well, and yeah, when they still have the, the lower models in the pipeline they have old units they might as well sell like is if you need the higher performance you're going to pay for it you know they're definitely not in the same position they were in before where they really needed to get back market share now they're like we're literally just the market leader exactly and i mean i would argue that there's still one hell of a value because when you like if you look at the ryzen 5 and the uh, the upcoming zen 3 series um you know it's it's supposed to retail for 300 bucks well it yeah it's hanging with the Intel i7. You know, $300 does not seem like a big ask for, you know, a CPU that is on par with the Intel i7, better in some cases. Okay. This episode is sponsored by Datadog, the monitoring and analytics platform for comprehensive visibility into your Linux environment. By uniting metrics and events from servers, databases, applications, and more, Datadog can easily give you a unified view into your entire infrastructure. 
easily identify hidden sources of latency, like overloaded hosts, by monitoring server metrics alongside application data. With machine learning-based alerts and features like anomaly detection, Datadog can also help you to monitor and alert on the health of your servers in real time without alert fatigue. Start your Datadog trial today by visiting datadog.com slash 25admins. Start your trial, create one dashboard, and you'll get a free Datadog t-shirt. That's datadog.com slash 25admins. You wrote a very interesting article recently called Yesterday's Corporate Network Design Isn't Working for Working from Home. Everybody right now is trying to transition from this model where 95 plus percent of the employees come into, you know, fixed office buildings every day and sit their butts in physical chairs and work with, you know, locally attached resources to moving to this dispersed model where people work from home or a coffee shop or, you know, wherever. But the point is they're not coming into an office and the resources haven't magically just all moved out to the cloud. You know, you, you still end up having to move data in and out of those physical buildings, you know, where your application and your file servers are. And just people weren't really set up for it for the most part. You know, I mean, you still have tons of businesses that have asymmetrical residential style pipes, you know, like 200 down and 20 up, uh, which is exactly balanced the wrong way because now the vast majority of their data needs to be uploaded out of the office, not downloaded into it. So it's been kind of a struggle adapting. If you're moving towards the cloud, maybe you already got slightly fatter pipes. But outside of that, you just were not set up for that many people to be working from home. Uh, and then you get the whole separate things of just the security posture and trying to define what's inside your network versus outside or, you know, what devices people use to connect to the corporate network. And it just gets uh, a lot different really quickly when suddenly everybody's not coming into the office uh, and you know, even just uh, support-wise, people aren't on a network that the the IT support team knows, right? So you got everybody working from home calling corporate IT support saying, hey, I can't connect to work's stuff. And it's like, well, I have to debug everybody's home network now? That'll be fun. Yeah, because before you'd have a few people VPNing in, but most people would be physically there, whereas now it's completely the opposite. And so handling that traffic coming in, you can't just do that on some terrible old router or whatever. You need specific hardware for it. Again, the issue is not really the data that's coming into the corporate network. It's the data that's going out of the corporate network. Because when you're on the VPN, you know now almost all of your data is flowing out rather than flowing in because your people are trying to access resources that are in the building and bring them outside the building one way or the other. Now, there are there are better and worse ways to do that. And, you know, like personally, I've had clients that fall on both sides of that scale. Um, You know, I have CPA clients that were already, you know, using like uh, Microsoft Windows. They call it remote desktop servers now, but, you know, terminal servers where you've got uh, you'll have 20 desktops served off of one machine. And it's only job in life is for you to RDP into it. So everybody RDPs into the one box. They were already doing that, so it wasn't really much of a shift for them, you know, to just have people not coming into the office because the bandwidth needs aren't really very big for RDP sessions. Yeah, it's just compressed video mostly, isn't it? Well, I think RDP is even sometimes less compressed video and more the instructions to draw the same things on your screen. Like it's literally almost the API calls. Yeah, correct. R- RDP is a really great protocol uh, for what it does. 
Um, it's not just compressed video. Uh, it understands objects. Like if you're dragging an icon around on the desktop or whatever, you can do a lot of that rendering locally. It just says, Hey, you know, the user dragged this icon and you render that on your own machine. You just know the icon moved in this direction and it treats it like a tile or a sprite. But anyway, where, where things go badly is I've also seen people who refuse to leave their machines in the office to RDP into and we're like, you know, no, I want to take my big engineering system and it's multiple monitors and it's everything else home with me. And I'm just going to download files, you know, from the file server over the VPN and work on them at home. Or worse yet, you know, people will even try to actually open like a big engineering project using Samba over a VPN directly, like on a mapped drive that's, you know, going across a residential WAN link. And no, that does not go well at all. And What's even worse is not only does that, you know, network model not work, but now this person has actually removed all of their infrastructure from the office. So now it's more difficult even to get them a situation which does work like remote controlling that same machine. Because if they'd left the machine in the office, well, now all this massive data transfer from the, you know, the office file server or application server to the workstation, it all still happens on the LAN. Everything's nice and snappy like it always was. All they have to do is remote control that machine. I've definitely seen a lot of that uh, with like the VDI stuff as well. We're basically same thing, but you have some hypervisor somewhere and everybody that's connecting in has their own little VM with their desktop in it. it Let you do basically the same thing, but off one server or so, you know, something in the data center rather than on the desk. And sometimes the point of that, like I imagine the same thing with the CPAs, like even when they're in the office, they're still connecting using that remote desktop or VDI type session is for auditing and monitoring, right? When you're dealing with banks, for example, they want to know what everybody did on every machine. Mm -hmm. And so every machine is really just a dumb terminal. Going back to one of these machines is actually locked down. Yeah, there's a lot of good reasons for it. That's one. Another is, uh, you know, that way it makes sure that everybody's work is always being properly, you know, hourly snapshotted and replicated off and, you know, all those things that we harp on all the time on this show. You know, that brings up a point with the work from home. It's like how much of your company's useful data is now saved on random laptops uh, and is not getting backed up every night. And if you're doing VDI or RDP, you know, like into remote desktop surface server or into individual workstations, the answer is none of it because it all stayed in the office where you want it to be to begin with. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if you've got people that are just downloading files willy nilly over the VPN, one, you've completely saturated the absolute crap out of that VPN and everything sucks. And two, you know, like Alan said, now you don't know where all of your mission critical data is. Um, is it getting backed up? Is it being held securely in accordance, you know, with your company's needs for confidentiality, whether it's mandated like HIPAA or whether it's just practical. Either way, you you kind of don't know anymore. Now, in the case of something like HIPAA, hopefully you do know because you haven't allowed that to happen because regulations have made you say, hey, we can't do this. Hopefully. Yeah. And that's the point, right? That we've got a training problem and budget problem fundamentally here that companies don't want to spend money getting a consultant like you guys in to actually sort this out for them. So their staff that are barely trained to do this stuff are just muddling through and making a bunch of mistakes. You know, in a lot of cases, I don't even think it's so much that they don't want to hire a consultant to come in and sort things out for them as that they just don't have the experience with doing that. And, you know, 
one of the issues that we haven't touched on yet is the fact that there may not be the resources available that they truly need for that. I mean, one of the things that you really ought to have is a symmetrical connection, and that's not always available. I live in a capital city of my state in the United States, and there are many business sectors in the city where there are no symmetrical options. There are many more where there is a symmetrical option, but it starts at like $1,500 a month, you know, versus like 200 for a residential style 200 by 20. Yeah, but I ran into the same problem. When I first looked at getting a symmetrical connection here, the best offer I got was $10,000 a month. <laughs> That's why you became your own ISP. Uh, well, no, eventually I found an option that gave me a gigabit symmetrical for $1,500 a month. Wow. Uh, but, you know, that's ridiculous. It's like one and a half times what my mortgage is every month <laughs> just for internet. But the best I could get off a residential connection was like 100 by 5. And, you know, 5 megabits yeah. versus a gigabit is pretty hard to work with. And, yeah, it's just the infrastructure has just not been a priority for people to be able to upload, really. And especially, like, even if you're before work from home, just being able to use that much data towards the cloud was often uh, something companies were needing. But now, with everybody at home, people's home internet often probably needs more upload than they have. Uh, and, you know, the corporate network needs a lot more than it has. Your home network doesn't need more upload again if you're doing things properly with RDP or VDI. But right, yes. Yeah, if you're just dragging files back and forth and... Ugh. But the other reason why I imagine more places aren't doing it that way is they don't just don't know that there's a better way to do it. Right. And yes, the basically the RDP or VDI type thing is is really the answer. And it's, you know, if you think about it, it's what us sysadmins have been doing for ages. It was something like SSH. You use a lightweight protocol to connect to the machine and do all the work on the far side. Right? The files are over there and everything runs over there and I'm just seeing an output of it. Another thing that we haven't touched on is, but always comes up whenever anybody talks about this stuff is, you know, oh, we'll just move everything to the cloud and then problem solved. And it's, you know, it's just not that freaking easy. You know, there are some workloads that are already very cloud native. Like if you want to host, you know, email for domain and, and groupware, well, then by God, go out and get Office 365 or, you know, Google Suite or, you know, whatever, whatever they're calling it this week. And, you know, problem solved. It's done. That's what everybody's already doing. And it's fine. And it's great. But if you're trying to run an engineering firm, if you're trying to run an accounting firm, if you're trying to run an architectural firm, you know, that's, that's just not really going to happen. I mean, there are so many industries out there that really absolutely rely on people running software locally installed on Windows PCs, you know, with a central file server. And yeah, you can move all that out to the cloud as well, but that's, that's a migration that I see botched horribly time and time again, because you can't just move the centralized part out to the cloud. You've got to move the desktop side out to the cloud as well. And now you're doing just what Al and I have been talking about with VDI or RDP um, into virtual machines in the cloud that are on, you know, they are local to your file server and application server in the cloud. So basically it's the exact same infrastructure you had in your office, but you've moved all of it out into the cloud. Well, first of all, you know, that's not necessarily all that easy. Second of all, it usually costs a lot more money than keeping things inside the office. And then finally, you have got one hell of a nasty case of proprietary vendor lock-in once you've done that. Yeah. Um, because wherever you set up your virtual desktops and your virtual file server and everything else, 
it's not usually going to be the case. They're just going to be like, oh, hey, you know, here's an easy way to download these images so you can upload them to somebody else's, you know, if you need to swap providers later. So if those people uh, start giving you terrible service, they don't have enough bandwidth to their data center, they have reliability and uptime problems, whatever, it's not going to be simple to fix. And in a lot of cases, you just plain can't fix it because you abstracted that away and it's no longer under your control. If you try to move just the back end of it, then you have the same problem of now you're at the office accessing a mapped sandwich error over a VPN to the cloud and it's slow. Or, or, you know, if you move all the VDI stuff there, you have the, well, the first problem is, you know, you have these big engineering files that you're changing every day. You can't just not work on them for a week while you wait for them to upload. Yep. There's not generally a great way to get large amounts of data up to the cloud. You don't have fast enough internet. There is an option from Amazon where you can like mail them some hard drives and they'll load it up for you, <laughs> but they don't offer the service in reverse. So if you ever want to get it out of there, you're going to be trickling it out at whatever internet speed you can get. Oh, and Amazon will charge you for the bandwidth on the way out too. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by TrueNAS from iX Systems. Go to truenas.com. TrueNAS and FreeNAS have now unified as TrueNAS, the number one open storage OS. TrueNAS uses the power and reliability of OpenZFS to bring open source economics to enterprise-grade unified storage with support for file, block, object, and app storage. You can use the free TrueNAS Core Edition or invest in a TrueNAS Enterprise system. Coming soon is TrueNAS Scale, which provides open hyperconverged infrastructure with support for Linux containers, and you can follow the development, try out, and contribute to this exciting project. Check out truenas.com and see how TrueNAS can support your next storage project, whether it's just a few terabytes all the way up to multiple petabytes. That's truenas.com. Let's do some free consulting then. If you want to send your questions in for Jim and Alan, you can do so show at 2.5admins.com. And if you want to support creation of these episodes, you can do so on Patreon. There's details for that at 2.5admins.com. And thank you, everyone, who is supporting us. It's really appreciated. And for $5 or more, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And we've also got this goal of $500 on there. And once we hit that, we'll go weekly with these episodes. So check that out and support us. So I'm afraid I've jumped the queue this week because I had a question for you guys. So uh, sorry, everyone. So I have got this NAS and I've got a couple of ZFS pools on it with three and five terabytes used. I've only got four gigs of RAM in it. It's a very low power Celeron system. Performance is not an issue for me. Now, I have got a bunch of backups on there which are horribly disorganized with backups of backups of backups, and there's a ton of duplicated files, I'm almost sure. So my question is, what's the best way to deal with that? Now, ZFS dedupe, my understanding of that is that if you enable deduplication, then you need a ton of RAM for that. I've only got four gigabytes in there. I've heard that you can possibly use an SSD for the table space, so that could do that. But um, maybe a simpler way, I've heard of that there's some uh, tools that you can use to scan through and replace some of your duplicates with just either symlinks or hard links. So... First of all, is deduplication on ZFS still a bad idea unless you've got ridiculous amounts of RAM? It's usually a bad idea, even if you do have ridiculous amounts of RAM. Right. Basically, bad idea altogether. Uh, don't do that. Plus, in your case, it's not going to help because it's online only. So it only dedupes as you write the data. So unless you're going to refill all your eight terabytes of data on, it's not going to do anything 
uh, except for when you start writing new data and it's not even going to match the old data. So you'd have to add two more copies before you get any benefit. The upside of dedupe is that it's block level. So it's every, you know, in ZFS by default, every 128K. So if you have two files that are mostly the same, but, you know, in the later backup, it's changed slightly. The parts of it that are the same will still dedupe, whereas uh, using some program to actually just look at your files, find ones that have the same checksum and replace them with a hard link or a sim link will only work if the files are entirely exactly identical. Right. Okay. But it's you think that dedupe's generally a bad idea. So what's the tool that I should be using for this job then? So there's a tool called rdfind. It's in the Ubuntu main repositories, and it does exactly what you want it to do. Um, it scans your system, and it looks for uh, files that are the same uh, size, and uh, then it will check them for matching MD5 sums. And you can tell it what you want to do when it finds them, whether it's just tell you, you know, what the dupes are in an output text file, whether you want it to delete some dupes, whether you want to replace, you know, uh, copies with hard links, it'll do any of those things. I'm not super familiar with its day-to-day use, but I know that's the answer and it's out there. Yeah. Uh, the only caveat I would put is that you can't make hard links across separate file systems. So if you have separate ZFS right. pools or if you've done separate uh, data sets, then they'll have to be sim links rather than hard links. I'm not fully familiar with the difference between hard links and sim links, to be honest. Like, what, what's the difference? So you have to understand that a file is both data and metadata, right? Yeah. And the metadata points you to where the blocks of the actual data for the file live. Yeah. What a hard link is, is a copy of just the metadata pointing to those same data blocks. Right. Whereas a sim link actually points to both the metadata and the data for the file. Right. A hard yeah. link, there's actually no such thing as an original when you have two hard links to a file. Um, it doesn't work that way. They're both equally valid. And right. with a sim link, um, if you remove the original file, then the, the remaining sim link is useless. It does nothing. But with a hard link, if you remove either side of the hard link, you haven't changed anything. Right. The other thing that tends to catch people up on that is not realizing that because the hard links both point to the same set of data, uh, it, if you edit one or the other hard link, it doesn't matter which one because you're still changing the underlying data on both of them. Right. Which might not be what you want with a backup. For already taken backups is one thing, but if you end up doing this on, say, the directory where you're writing new backups to... Like if you're just using, I think you're using rsync or something to do your backups, right? Yeah, yeah. So if you're doing it to the target directory, then if you've got these, a bunch of different directories of these uh, backups, if you update the one you're about to put the new rsync against uh, with a hard link, then if it updates that file, it's going to update the copy in your backup from two weeks ago. Yes and no. Um, keep in mind that by default, rsync does not modify files in place. Right. By default, rsync creates a new file and it removes the old file once it's done with the new one. And that's exactly the behavior that you want with hard links. Um, you have to actually, rsync can also update files in place, but you have to actually use the in place option, which very few people do. If you use in place, then yes, you'll change it on both ends. Rsync in its default behavior, if you have two directories, each of which contains a hard link uh, to the same file, um, then what will happen is it will update where you rsync into by creating a new file and then removing that hard link. So the data itself remains unchanged in the other one. There are a lot of rsync based packup tools that do all this for you. 
Um, our snapshot is one of the the better known ones, and it actually does all of this, including the hard link trees, all on its own without you needing to mess with it on a low level. Well, the good news here is that my backups f- going forward are pretty well organized now. So this is just, I say backups, this was not automated stuff. This was chuck it on a USB hard drive and, oh, that's full, buy another one, put it in a drawer. And then I've just sort of copied them all onto this one um, ZFS pool, or actually two. This backups across both of them. It's a terrible, terrible mess. And I just want to kind of clean it up, get some space back, and then going forward, well, for the last year or two, I've been pretty organized with it. So I don't think any of my new backups are going to have much duplication in them. Um, it's it's almost all just legacy stuff. So I just, I think I need to just run it once and then job done, hopefully. Yeah. So basically what you want to do here is you just want to get like, you know, all of your legacy backup cruft, um, get it all into one data set to begin with so that hard links will actually work because you're not crossing a file system boundary. Then run RD find again against it until RD find a, you know, a hard link everything that it can. And that will be your deduping. Once it's done, everything will be deduped and you've just got your one legacy cruft backup data set and it's self-contained and you're good to go. So you think hard link rather than symlink is the route I should go? Yeah. Like Jim mentioned, it's less likely to end up with a symlink pointing to something that's not there anymore. Yeah, that's the thing. If you delete the wrong quote copy, unquote, when you've done some links, then you've destroyed it everywhere. Whereas with hard links, as long as any one remaining hard link exists, then, you know, those blocks remain available and unchanged and, you know, yada, yada. Moving back to what you actually need to do as far as deduplicating your stuff. So I'm looking at the rdfind man page right now, and it's really freaking simple. You'll apt install rdfind once you've done that. Uh, if we assume that your legacy backup stuff is, you know, mounted at uh, tank legacy backup, you would just say rdfind dash make hard links tank slash legacy backup done. It will go all through it. It will make hard links where duplicates existed. And, uh, you know, once it's done, you're done. Couldn't be much simpler. There is one thing, however, that we do need to cover that we haven't talked about yet. Uh, before you run RD find on those precious legacy backups, make sure you do have a backup somewhere else because that is a potentially dangerous operation. So make sure you can undo what RD find did if you end up not liking it. Yeah. So first take a ZFS snapshot. Uh, this will mean you won't get any space back when you do the RD find thing, but then you can delete the snapshot when you're sure that that's right. Uh, and yes, you want an actual backup, not just a snapshot before you do this. Yeah. These are your only backups of your backup. Then you probably want to, to make sure they're safe. Excellent. Well, sorry everyone for jumping the queue, but hopefully that was useful to someone else, not just me. We'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send your questions in. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you in two weeks.